Father, as we look at the scripture this morning, we ask that you'd open our eyes, enlighten our hearts to the things you have for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're not going to be in one particular text this morning. Uh, We're back to our five-part series. This is week three. The theme was building your life on the rock. And if you remember the key text we started with in week one was Matthew 7, 24 and 25. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said at the end of this portion of that, he said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them or does them or keeps them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, life happened, all the difficulties of life came up against that life that was built on the rock, burst against the house, but it didn't fall. It was founded on the rock. In week one, we talked about the rock being first and foremost, simply coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no rock to build on if you don't start with him. So that if you didn't know him, starting to build on the rock was coming into relationship with him. It was entrusting yourself to him, his person and his work on your behalf so that your sins could be forgiven and you're reconciled to God. We also talked, too, though, about the mistake many Christians make when they start well, they've got a foundation to build on, but then they build elsewhere. They build on sand or muck or mud elsewhere. And that it's to begin on Christ, but then it's to continue with him on the truth truth of his word. Week two, we put up our first foundation wall, and it was forgiveness. And I think I've mentioned, but I'll reiterate here, The first two of these four foundation walls are, are absolutely imperative because God says in the text that we looked at and that we will look at this morning, if you don't get it right on these two things, both having to do with forgiveness, God is opposed to you. You cannot build on Christ. You cannot build on a rock when you're in opposition to God. And God says absolutely without doubt in these two areas of forgiveness, if you're not obeying, doing what he said, you can't build on the rock. And you are storing up problems in your life of one, one sort or another, one magnitude or another. So you've got to get it right on these two for sure. We'll look at a couple other things, uh, walls three and four later. Uh, do you remember the second wall? Excuse me, am I saying this right? The rock, the first wall was forgiveness. And the key text was Mark eleven twenty five. Whenever Jesus said, you stand praying... You're seeking to fellowship with God. You're talking to God. Forgive if you have anything against anyone. This was all-inclusive, no exceptions. If you're going to come to God for fellowship, he says, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who's in heaven may forgive you. This is straight out of the Lord's Prayer elsewhere also. You remember that we pray when you follow Jesus' model prayer Forgive us our transgressions or our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed or sinned against us. Just as you forgive, Lord, we're forgiving. And you remember the key story there was Matthew 18, in which the great king forgives a debtor who has a debt that could never be repaid. The $10 billion debt could never be repaid. The king forgave him when he requested him to. That servant then went out and throttled his neighboring servant who owed him, in comparison, a mini-debt. And you remember the king's displeasure. I forgave you that great debt. How could you not forgive your fellow servant that small debt? 
And that's the situation we're in when we want to fellowship with God but are not willing to forgive those who've sinned against us. You must forgive. That was the first wall. This morning, we're going to look at the flip side of forgiveness. The first wall was you forgive others when they've harmed you. But the flip side is, what do you do when you are not the sinned against, but the sinning party? When you've sinned against someone else, we've got the same kind of guideline in the scriptures related to our ongoing fellowship with God and therefore our ability to build our life on the rock. Not yet, thanks. And it's related to the flip side of forgiveness. When you are the sinning party, when you're the sinning party, last time when we talked about forgiveness, we said God is the only morally perfect agent in the universe. Now, angels were excluding them, but related to humans and God, God's the only party who never sins. And because he's creator, because we all owe our allegiance and, in fact, our existence to him, Any sin is always most sinful, so to speak, because it's committed against God. So when you and I are on the giving end of sin, the first priority is always to make it right with God. Always. Listen to David from Psalm 32, verse 5. David said, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I didn't hide. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32 is almost certainly written about David's adultery and his murder through the hands of the enemies of Israel of Uriah and his sin with Bathsheba. And when he confessed his sin, he said elsewhere, Psalm 53, Lord, it's primarily against you that I've sinned. He committed adultery with another man's wife, and he had another man killed. But he understood that his first, if you will, great sin was against God himself. So in Psalm 53 and Psalm 32, David, 51, thank you, thanks. Uh, David is going to God and confessing his sin there. God is always the most sinned against party, if you will. Also, the Pharisees have it right in the Gospels. When they hear Jesus saying to people, your sins are forgiven, They say only God can forgive sin. And in any ultimate sense, that is absolutely true. Only God can forgive sin. So we always go to God first. When we've sinned, we get our relationship right with God first. 1 John 1, 9, this is a memory verse everybody needs to know. If we confess our sins, and confession of sin is simply saying it the way it is. It's telling the truth about what we've done, our failure, whatever we've done wrong that was sin. Confession is going to God and saying, this is what I've done. It's not covering up. You know, it's interesting in Genesis 3, when you see the temptation by the serpent of Eve and then Adam, man's, our natural propensity from our first sin is to say, no, we, we really didn't do it. Or we're really not that culpable or that responsible. So when God comes to Adam and says, what have you done? Adam doesn't say what he's done first. He says, the woman you gave me, God, you gave me this woman, and Lord, she tricked me. And then he finally gets around, and by the way, yes, I ate. But that's our natural propensity. It's always to excuse ourselves or rationalize why our sin really isn't our fault. But God says, we've got to go to him and acknowledge. That's confession. We're acknowledging what's true. 
So when we are the errant party, when we have sinned, we go to God, we confess our sin, and he forgives our sin based on what Jesus has done for us. So that's where we start. However, it can't end there uh, in the cases where someone else is involved in our sin. And this is our key text for this morning. It's out of the Sermon on the Mount again. This is Matthew 23 and 24. What do we do when we've sinned and that sin has involved sinning against someone else? Matthew 23 and 24. Jesus says, If you're presenting your offering at the altar and you remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. You know, if you were a Jew in the days of Jesus, hearing this, you could bring various kinds of offerings to the temple. If you had sinned, you would bring a sin offering or a guilt offering. And I don't think that's what's in in, uh, view here. If your relationship with God was right, if your sins were confessed and your sins were covered by the animal sacrifices that were offered, you could go to God at other times and give what were called free will, or peace offerings. And these were times in which you would come and out of an expression of thanksgiving to God or just a desire for fellowship, you and your family would come and make an offering. And then you would sit and you would enjoy the feast that was the fruit of your offering to God there at the temple. So I think that's the setting or the scenario here. And Jesus says, when you're there and you're at the altar and what you're doing is you're fellowshipping with God, you're seeking his presence and his blessing and you're thankful to him, But you're there and you remember that someone else has an issue with you. Jesus says you're not free to stand there and enjoy this intimacy with God when someone else has an issue, a legitimate gripe, if you will, with you. He says, leave your offering and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and enjoy fellowship. This verse makes it clear that your fellowship and my fellowship with God is dependent on us not just confessing our sin to him, but confessing and being reconciled to others when we've sinned against them. It's not a holy huddle where it's just God and I, God and me. If someone else is involved in the wrong I've done, I am commanded to go and be restored or reconciled to them. Uh, you know, our tendency, because we want to hide and we don't want to be too vulnerable to others, even when we've sinned, uh, the question at least comes up in my mind, what's the importance of seeking forgiveness or reconciliation with others? And I think it gets down a little bit, at least, to God's priorities. You know, in both Testaments, uh, if you want to know what's God's priority, uh, typically it's said in both Testaments, love God with all that you are and love others as you would love yourself. Do right by God and do right by others. If you're going to God and saying, God, I love you and I just want to have happy fellowship with you and you're treating others around you poorly, you are living against God's, the essence of his desires for anyone on the earth. It's not just to love him and enjoy his fellowship. It is also to love others, to do right by them. In fact, if you check both Testaments, you'll see that at least 50% of the time, if the Scripture is judging the spiritual climate of a person or a nation, 
it is using the witness of how they've treated others as the thermometer of their spiritual condition. If you look, for instance, in Ephesians, am I saying this right? Galatians 5, at the fruit of the Spirit, most of the fruit of the Spirit has to do with the way you interact with others. Outbursts of anger, one of the fruits of the flesh, is not directed to God primarily, it's to others. Uh, Long-suffering, a fruit of the Spirit, that's directed towards other people. But you'll see, if you read the prophets or the New Testament, the key barometer of your spiritual condition and mine is as much tied to the way we treat others as what we're saying to or about God. This gets right to the heart and soul of what God's heart and soul is, relationship with him and relationship with others, appropriate, loving relationships with others. Now imagine this. This would never happen in this nursery. But if you were a parent and you had two children, Johnny and Tommy, and Johnny takes a building block and smacks Tommy over the head, and poor Tommy's in the corner wailing and crying, and Johnny comes up to you and asks for a cookie. Do you give him the cookie? Probably not. There's Tommy wailing in the corner. The first priority is not the cookie. You tell Johnny, you go over and make it right with your brother. You go over and tell him you're sorry, comfort him, make it right to the best of your ability. Then we can talk about cookies. Oftentimes in our lives, we've hit Tommy over the head with the building block. Then we go to God, like the Jews with their offerings, and we say, by the way, how about a cookie? You can imagine, what is God's response? You've just gone and clobbered someone else. Do you think he's really thinking about giving you cookies at this time? He's not. He's not. It doesn't work that way. God's response is Matthew 5.24. Leave your offering. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and present your offering. You can't build your life on a rock if you're not being restored or reconciled to those folks that you've wronged. It will not work. It cannot work. And this is one of those things. This thing with forgiveness is so big on God's agenda that it is the two things that he says you're not free to fellowship with him if you don't forgive and if you don't seek forgiveness. You can just forget everything else because until those two things are reconciled, you're not free in your relationship with him. That's how important these two things are. Forgiving others when they've sinned against you, seeking forgiveness when you've been the sinning party. The question becomes then, if it's imperative that we seek forgiveness, that we confess our sins to others we've harmed, in what situations, in what scenarios, what sins related to others do we need to follow through on this with? And this is a good question, and uh, I've had, it's interesting, a few conversations about this uh, just recently with uh, several different people. You know that if you and I sin, we all sin in many ways, James says, but if you and I sin in the thoughts of our mind, in the arena of our mind, the only person who knows about that is God. Or if we sin in words we say when no one else is around to hear them, the only person we've sinned against is God. And with sins like that, where God's the only person, we have not met his standard, that's why it's a sin, we make our confession to God and we're good to go. 
because no one else is involved. So we're good to go. When our sin, though, involves someone else, I'd say you can figure out if you need to to apologize, ask their forgiveness, go and be reconciled with them related to two different issues. If you've done something or said something or failed to do something or failed to say something, which has put a barrier between you and another person, that's something you need to be reconciled over. That's something you need to go and seek their forgiveness over. If something you've done or failed to do has put a barrier in the relationship you have with another person, you need to go and be reconciled, rejoined, brought back together. You've put something up, a barrier in your relationship. You're trying to remove the barrier. That's the thought. The other thing is, if you have caused that person to suffer some kind of loss, you need to seek their forgiveness. We'll talk more about that later. So if you've put an impediment in your relationship with someone else up, or you've caused someone else to suffer loss, I think biblically you need to go to them and apologize, ask their forgiveness. Just some examples. Uh, This doesn't take long to figure some of these out, by the way. If I say something nasty to my wife before church on Sunday morning, how free am I when I come in here to sing God's praises? Not very. I put an impediment between my relationship and hers. And if I've said something that's harmed my wife, words of anger, wrath, spite, whatever, accusation, I need to tell Kathy I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. If I have failed to follow through on something I told someone I would do apart from some loss for them, I need to tell them, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. I'm sorry I didn't follow through on what I told you I would do. Please forgive me. As much as possible, we are removing barriers in our relationships. So anything that we've done or said or failed to do or say that we know has created an impediment, we want to remove that through asking their forgiveness. If someone has suffered loss because of what we've done, if you've stolen something from someone else, they've suffered real loss. Sometimes they may not even be aware of it or they may not be aware you did it. It would be appropriate for you to go and say, I'm sorry I took your building blocks, whatever. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. They've suffered loss. Uh, If you have harmed someone else's reputation, this is something that comes up when we're not careful with the words we speak about some people to others. You can go to them and say, I'm sorry I spoke ill of you or ill-advisedly about you to others. You can't always restore reputation. Sometimes things cannot be restored. Uh, But you can certainly apologize and ask their forgiveness and do what you can. We'll talk more about that later. So if you know you've done something that has put an impediment up in your relationship or you've caused someone else to suffer wrong, I think those are two good criteria to determine if you need to go to that person and confess and seek to be reconciled. If you apply this, just think in concentric circles, you know, right where you live. If you've got a sin against God only, you you confess to God, you're good to go. If you're married, you know what, I'd say it's a given. 
You might not need to be restored to your spouse ten times a day. If you're married, you know what I mean. You can share angry words and hateful attitudes. Uh, it starts at home, doesn't it? That's, that's where it starts. And you need to do that as many times as it takes. Every hurtful word you speak or every little jab or whatever is part of that wall that God says we are to pull down. So you might be making confession and seeking reconciliation with your spouse ten times a day. And if that's what it takes, that's what you need to do. If you're a parent with children, you know that you can be too harsh. I know I can be too harsh at times. I can speak before I know all that's gone on. I would need to tell my kids, I'm sorry, I misspoke, forgive me. Or I spoke out of anger, forgive me. Or if you're a child to your parents, you know that it's easy to show a lack of respect or obedience or esteem. And you need to say, Mom or Dad, I blew it. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Or siblings with one another. You need to say, I'm sorry. I blew it. Forgive me. Or friends. You know, again, we mentioned in week two, since we know that everyone sins, we know that we're sinning, and we know that this will be a a give and take through all our life, forgiving others and asking forgiveness. This is just part of it. So if you're in relationship with anyone, work, home, school, whatever, it's a given you'll need to forgive and you'll need to ask forgiveness. So just think of the arenas you occupy, whatever that is, at home with whoever's there, your friendships, if you're employed, clients, you name it. You've got to think through those and say, Lord, I confess my sin to you, and when appropriate, I go to that person and I confess my sin and ask their forgiveness. When I was at K-State, I don't know why this strikes me, but I was a new Christian, and I was a sophomore, and this young freshman, an underling because he was a freshman, and he was a distance runner on the track team, not a sprinter like me, so he was a low life on two levels, came up, and I don't know why, but he put his head in my door, my dorm room door, and said something that I just considered snotty. And so I responded in kind, and then some. And at the moment, it felt really good. And, you know, he kept going down the hall. I knew it was a great put down, and I'd shown him where he belonged in my world. And, you know, as he walked down the hall and went into his room, I just felt terrible. I felt sick inside immediately. And I don't even know how much I knew biblically, but I couldn't go on. So I walked down the hall, and I told him I was out of line. I mean, anger. Uh, Anger was one of my key issues, by the way. I've almost landed my brothers and friends in jail before. Joe Cassidy, I almost helped him to jail one night because of an outburst of anger many years ago. And it was the same thing with this guy. I was just ticked. And angry, and it just, it was boiled over before I knew it. And then I just felt unclean. And he said, hey, no problem. And I walked back down the hall and got to my studies, and life was good. I was good to go. That's what it should be like when we've done wrong. We're not at peace with ourselves. We shouldn't be, unless we're very, very dull. We're not at peace with God. We go and we make it right as much as we can. We're clean, and at that point, we're good to go with God. And we're good to go with that person, generally speaking.
you probably have had times when you have gone to someone that you know you've done wrong to and you've confessed it and you didn't get someone saying, gee, that's, that's great, I forgive you, and they give you a big hug. You might get, you're a jerk, get out of here. You do not control the other person's response to your request for reconciliation. You are responsible for going and confessing, speaking what's true about what you've done, and asking for forgiveness. That's your part. That's my part. You do not control their response. You cannot control that person. You don't control their response. Romans twelve eighteen says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As far as possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes this means you've sinned, you've done wrong to someone else, you go and confess that to them and you ask their forgiveness and they don't give it. Sometimes, and, th- and that may be the way it is, forever and ever, and then you live with that. You live with that. You be at peace as far as it depends on you. Sometimes it is important when we go and ask forgiveness of someone, especially if it's quite recently to, to whatever we've done, they may just be steaming, hurt, confused, disappointed. You, we don't go to them demanding instant forgiveness and reconciliation. Sometimes we go and say, I blew it, please forgive me. And they may say, I am just angry and I don't want to talk to you now. Okay, I understand that. Or I'm frustrated and I've got to think through this thing. Okay. We don't control their response. And we need to give them room to simply emotionally sometimes deal with what we've done or said. But it's incumbent on us to go and tell it like it is and say what we've done. Toby, you want to turn the air up? It's cold in here. Sorry, right there, right behind you on the wall. Thanks, Tanya. I was was cold too. Um, But it's incumbent on us to go and say, yes, we, we did wrong. Please forgive us. And then we can leave that with the Lord and with them. And sometimes it may require coming back later and say, can I touch base with you on this later? Can we talk again about this later? If they're having a tough time or they're still coming to grips with something, that's certainly appropriate. We don't come demanding forgiveness. We come humbly to ask forgiveness. There's another component of asking forgiveness, and that is in some situations it's restitution. It's restoring something. If you're a farmer and you've got 40 acres and a mule and a few cattle, and your neighbor is a big, wealthy rancher with cattle on a thousand hills, and some Friday he comes and steals your cattle and sells them at market at the sale barn Friday evening and goes and parties on the town that weekend, and he laments Monday morning. He feels bad. So he comes across the the road to you, and he says, as you stand in your empty pastures with no cattle, I'm so sorry I stole your cattle and spent all that money on my wild weekend. Will you forgive me? And you see the rich rancher, and behind him you see his cattle on a thousand hills. What do you think? It's a little hollow. Forgive you? Well, hey, how about restoring a little bit of what you took? Then let's talk forgiveness. (laughs) It certainly rings hollow. 
If someone else has suffered loss at your hand or mine, and you go up and say, gee, you know, I feel so bad, please forgive me, and you've done nothing to restore the loss you've caused, how meaningful does the appeal for forgiveness ring in their ears? How meaningful is it? Now, there are times when what we've done requires us to not just confess and ask for forgiveness, but it requires us to restore something that they've suffered loss because of us. Everybody knows, I think, the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Let me read a portion of this briefly. Jesus enters Jericho, and he finds a man named Zacchaeus, the chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And remember, the tax gatherers were loathed because not only did they work on behalf of the Romans, but they gouged their fellow citizens by collecting more than the taxes required. And they could do so because they had the Roman army behind them. It was extortion. So they worked for the enemy and they extorted funds routinely. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your house. He hurried, he came down, he received him gladly. When they saw it, They see this tax gatherer, this extortioner who's taken money from them, not just taxes. He's taken their money unfairly by threat of the Roman government behind him. And now Jesus, the hopeful Messiah, is going to have dinner at his house. What gives? When they saw it, they were grumbling, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. This was true, absolutely true. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, he no doubt hears them. And he knows the reputation he has with these folks. He says, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I have defrauded, if those whom I have defrauded Anything, I'll give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus was not purchasing his salvation, but the reality of his repentance and his restoration to God was evidenced by his willingness to repay what he had taken. In Luke's gospel earlier, when Pharisees, when people who were known to have worked against God and against others, came to John for baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, John had said, bring forth deeds or fruit in keeping with repentance. Demonstrate the reality of your appeal to God for forgiveness by the way you live. And that's what Zacchaeus was doing. When he said, I'll restore what I've taken wrongfully, it was a demonstration of a genuine faith, a genuine turning, a genuine reconciliation with God because he's being reconciled with those he's wronged. He didn't buy salvation. Salvation cannot be purchased, but it demonstrated the reality of his conversion. There are times when you and I harm someone else, or take something that we're not able to restore. Uh, It is possible for you to take something that cannot be paid back. Um, Reputations cannot be made whole again. If you 
speak ill of someone else in a way that harms their reputation, generally you'll find that cannot be made up. They will live with the consequence of that sin, period. Even if you go back and tell people, sorry, that's not really the way it was, generally reputations are very, very hard to mend. And sometimes you've got to say, I've taken something from you I can't pay back. Forgive me. But in those occasions when you can restore, I would tell you you need to restore. You need to be like Zacchaeus. And not just say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, but restore what it is in your power to restore. If it's monetary sometimes, that means maybe making a payment plan with someone that you've taken something from. You know, consumer debt, this, in our culture, we spend more than we have. And it's easy to get in a situation where you owe, you have taken money or goods and services from someone you can't pay back. You have wronged them. You have sinned against them by taking what you agreed to pay for, but don't. You know, don't go and file bankruptcy and say, I can't pay you back if it's in your power to do. Get on a payment plan. I'm just using this as an example. There are, if you look in the yellow pages, there are credit agencies, numerous, because this is one of those common things in our culture today. We spend what we don't have to spend. Then we tell them, gee, I'm sorry. Forgive me. You know what they're saying? Where are the cattle? Show me a little cattle. Show me a few of those greenbacks. Then talk to me about forgiveness. But when it's in your power to restore, that is part of reconciliation. Again, it's not always possible. But if, if they've suffered harm, suffered loss, and it's in your power to restore, that should be a part of the reconciliation. To go and tell someone you've done wrong requires humility. It requires humility. And if you tend to be a proud person, you'll find this very difficult. But you know we said that if you don't forgive, God says you're not good to go with him. And if you don't go and ask forgiveness or reconciliation, you're not good to go with him. If you won't humble yourself as part of that process, God says he is opposed to the proud. Peter and James both say the same thing, quoting Proverbs. It's three times. You know, if it's repeated in the Bible, count on it. If it's said once, you can count on it. If it's repeated, it's because God's putting an exclamation point on it. God opposes the proud. How stable is your life if what you're doing is bringing God's opposition to you? You're not building on a rock. Failure is sure to come. Humility is required to go and say to someone else, I was wrong, I'm sorry, forgive me. It requires humility. God is opposed to the proud, but guess what? When you humble yourself, he gives grace to the humble. He will give you his help, his grace, his compassion, his mercy, When you humble yourself and do what he said, I'm sorry, I blew it, forgive me, you'll get his grace and his help. If you stubbornly, pridefully refuse to humble yourself and ask forgiveness, you will have God's opposition. You can count on it. He does not lie. He's repeated it at least three times. He will oppose you. Asking forgiveness requires humility. When I was a kid, I think I was about 12 years old, 
some relatives took me on their trip to Colorado as their summer vacation. Seems like it was about two or three weeks long. And it was a great time. We were camping the whole time. They had a pop-up trailer, so we were camping. And the family I was traveling with, my relatives, had several kids. And one was younger than me, by, probably by several years. Let's just say um, say six or seven. I think that'd be about right. We're at this lovely, just lovely, small camping area in Colorado. There's a stream going through the middle, and, and we little guys were out playing and having fun. There's another camper nearby, and uh, let's call this little guy Johnny. Johnny's one of my favorite names, as you can tell. Johnny, I don't remember what Johnny did, but he did wrong by those other campers. He broke something, he took something, he did something, and Mom found out, my aunt found out. And you did not want to get crossways to my aunt. She found out what little Johnny had done, and she told little Johnny to go to those fellow campers and tell them what he had done and apologize. And this little guy, you would have thought someone was pulling his teeth out. He was wailing and crying and pleading with his mom. This went on for quite a while. And I felt so terrible for him. I thought, oh, please don't make him. You're killing him. It really sounded like he was dying. And in a way, he was. He was... It was pathetic. I mean, I didn't have much sympathy, but as a 12-year-old, I had enough sympathy to think, please don't make him go, you know. <laughs> Let it go. No way. No way. She makes him. Well, we go off. We're blissfully ignorant and forgetful of Johnny now. We go and play. And about five minutes later, he's skipping through the grass, joining us, singing, whistling, having a good time. Because he obeyed his mom He went and he told them, and you know what? This little guy, they said, hey, not a problem. Don't worry about it. Go on. And he was good to go. He was restored to his mom. He was restored to us, and there was nothing that hindered his fellowship. He didn't have to hide from the the fellow campers. He was free to run and play with the rest of us. No problems. No problems at all. And, you know, sometimes for you and I, if you bring this thing up about going and making it right with someone else, it looms, just like it did for my little cousin, as this giant, painful thing that's just too big and too dreadful to do or to face. But you know, the truth is, if you'll swallow hard and assume a posture of humility and go and do the hard thing, God will give you his help You'll be restored to him, and you'll remove the impediments with those around you. You'll be good to go again. You may wail for a moment, and you may cry, and you may feel crazy and and a number of things, but if you'll go and do it, your heart will be released. Then you can go and fellowship with God because you've done right by him, and you've done right by others. You're fulfilling the two key things that are all that's important to him in this world. Do right by me, he says, and do right by others, and you'll be good to go. It would be a mistake to close a topic like this without saying we need to take a minute. We're getting ready to sing God's praises. And, you know, Sunday morning is interesting. I don't know if you find this true for your family, but oftentimes Sunday morning before church, that's when the harsh words that stir up anger start in the family. 
between spouses, between siblings, etc. And before we declare God's praises, it would probably be fitting that we take just a minute to say, Lord, is there anyone I need to be reconciled with? Lord, is there anyone I need to make restoration to? Let's just take a minute to do that right now. Just ask the Lord. And by the way, if you need to, write it down. If you don't write it down now, make a mental note and get to it later. But when we're talking about building on a rock and having this foundation so that when life shakes and the storms of life come, we're good to go, this is one of those things. We're building on sand when we let these things accumulate over time. And then trouble comes and we're not prepared and we don't stand and our life structure doesn't stand. So take a minute right now and just ask the Lord if there's anyone you need to go to and ask forgiveness from. Lord, I know that it's not possible to be on good terms with you when we, by our doing, are not on good terms with others. That, Lord, when we sin against another person, we're sinning against someone created in your image. We're sinning against someone your son died for. Lord, when we harm each other or we harm another Christian, we're harming someone who's in your family. And I know based on your word that we're not good to go with you if we're not good to go with each other. Lord, help us to do what at times feels very difficult. Go and humble ourselves and confess our sin and ask forgiveness from others when we need to. Lord, when someone else has suffered a real loss because of us, when it's in our power, help us like Zacchaeus whose faith, whose genuine faith was demonstrated by his willingness to do right by those whom he had caused loss to help us when it's in our power to restore. Lord, help us to clothe ourselves with the garment of humility so that whether we've sinned only against you or whether we've sinned against others as well, help us so that we can humble ourselves before you and them whenever it's needed, confess our fault, ask forgiveness so that we can be restored and rejoin life and build on the rock of your Son and his word. Lord, thanks that restoration with you is always possible. If we confess our sins, you're faithful to forgive. You can't do otherwise. It's based on the provision of the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus. And Lord, help us, we who've been forgiven much by you, help us be quick to confess our faults to others and to be restored with them as well. And Lord, in the church, help us to be a group who forgives and who asks forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.